This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas A&M University, where the full-time MBA program at Mays Business School has been named a top global program for the third straight year by the Financial Times. Learn more at today.tamu.edu. And the Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority implements innovative and sustainable transportation solutions to enhance quality of life and economic vitality in Central Texas. Learn more at mobilityauthority.com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for February 24th, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. And this week we are joined by Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Multimedia reporter Alana Rocha. Hello. And environmental reporter Aaron Douglas. Hi. Thanks to y'all for joining so it's been uh, quite a period of time since our last TribCast. We had the, as everyone knows, the last week's winter storm that brought millions of power failures throughout the state. Uh, at one point, nearly half of Texas was without clean drinking water. And we know that dozens of people died in this storm, although it'll be weeks or maybe even months until we know the full human cost. Um, and, you know, a lot of anger and frustration about people who are stuck in extremely cold weather for Texas standards um, for extended periods of time without power or heat or things like that. Uh, there's a lot to talk about here. You know, the blame game, the steps the state is taking to prevent this from happening again. Uh, there's definitely some political fallout around here. But first, Aaron, I want to turn to you because you were writing quite a bit over the past week or so about you know, what happened here and, and, and how we got to this point. Can you kind of walk us through the events that led to, you know, the widespread power failures in the state? Sure. So basically what happened was when the winter storm started to hit, a lot of the power generators who create power for us and supply it to the electricity grid started to drop offline. And so they started to freeze, parts of their components started to freeze or they didn't have enough fuel to run their plants because their suppliers were freezing. And what happened was essentially that all of that power started to dwindle offline very rapidly in the early hours of Monday morning. And so what that caused was ERCOT who manages the grid in Texas to order what was supposed to be rolling blackouts to the state. And so that's what caused all of the blackouts that we saw. The problem is that when, while ERCOT wanted to order rolling blackouts, there was so little supply on the grid that the transmission utilities really couldn't roll those blackouts. And that is what left Texans without power for days. Right, right. And, you know, one thing that really strikes me about what happened in that evening, that Sunday night into Monday morning was uh, I was the happened to be the Texas Tribune's uh, weekend editor on Sunday night. And, and we had heard warnings from ERCOT about this, you know, we might have to do rolling outages, but they won't last, you know, more than 30 to 45 minutes or something like that. And uh, I remember going to bed, uh, or kind of closing my computer around 11 o'clock on Sunday and, and our reporter who was kind of keeping an eye on this for us being like, well, it looks like we're in pretty good shape. 
you know, moving forward. Uh, the ERCOT has an app where you can kind of look at the the projections of power uh, demand compared to what the supply was. And, and we looked at that and everything looked good and we didn't think we were going to have really blackouts. And then I wake up Monday morning and, you know, the two hours after we had said everything was good, we, we had started these, these massive blackouts. And, and, and as Monday kind of rolled into later in the day, it started to be clear that this, these were not rolling blackouts. There, there were millions of people who were going to be without power for a very long time. I mean, it seems like this really kind of caught ERCOT, our, uh, you know, the grid provider, the grid manager a bit off guard. Is that a, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think so, because ERCOT had projected to have a certain amount of demand. And so the first problem is that demand far outstripped their estimate of what uh, they expected for a winter uh, high point, essentially. And But the main problem actually was the supply side. So, you know, we both underestimated demand that we would need to get through a, a winter crisis like this where people are you know increasingly heating their homes and staying indoors and they're you know using more and more of their power but the main problem was that so much of the supply dropped offline because the plants couldn't operate in the cold weather that ERCOT really did not anticipate losing that much supply of power to the grid all at once and even though some of that power began to come back later in the week, once you once you drop the the power supply, you have to very carefully ratchet it back up onto the grid, and all the while, you know, balancing supply and demand because your electricity grid has to be balanced with those two at all times. Otherwise, you sort of risk some infrastructure problems. Right, and you you had a story last week about you know what some of those risks could be, and it sounds like we were kind of. Obviously, what happened last week was very bad, but we we came pretty close to it being even more catastrophic, right? Completely, yes. Yeah. So ERCOT officials said that we were very close, like minutes and seconds away from a catastrophic blackout of the entire grid. And if you lose the entire grid, which it's, I know it's hard to believe we didn't lose the entire grid because that's <laughs> what it feels like. But if we had gotten to that failure, that level of failure, then it may have taken much longer to get Texans power back. It could have taken weeks. It could have taken, according to ERCOT officials, even months. Um, and so what we experienced was, you know, very tragic and should never happen again in Texas. But I think that what we avoided would have been even more catastrophic if we can even imagine that. Right. It's hard to say we dodged a bullet because you know, that felt like a pretty, pretty painful bullet, but we, we dodged something even worse than a bullet, it seems like. So Ross, I mean, people have been, you know, spending a lot of time in, in extremely cold conditions inside their house. You know, we had, we had the power outages. What followed then were cities across the state having to uh, issue boil water notices or, or sometimes even burst pipes, causing people to lose water altogether. Um, there, of course, ice on the road, the, the kind of standard winter storm problems that people face. A lot of frustration out there among Texans about how things went. Uh, you're, you're our resident columnist. You, you get to share your opinions. How justified is the anger at, that people have toward their state government right now? 
Well, I think this is, you know, a failure of the things that are supposed to work. You know, it's one of those, it's not exactly that you only had one job because you got more than one job, but this was certainly one of the basic jobs. The infrastructure is supposed to work. The reliability of the electric grid is sort of a given. And nobody in Texas, for perfectly good reasons, nobody in Texas or relatively nobody in Texas two weeks ago knew what the hell ERCOT was. And now they are all, you know, as, as quickly as we all became epidemiologists and, you know, amateur voting law experts, we quickly became experts on the grid stuff. And, you know, this is a chain of things that's really complex, but it's supposed to function smoothly so that the thing I don't have to worry about is what happens when I flip the switch on the wall or plug something into the socket on the wall. Um, the bottom fell out and the people responsible for that are being held accountable by the people who were left, you know, shivering or worse when the bottom fell out. So I, I think the anger is really well placed and you can tell by the reaction in the political class that they're hearing about it. Uh, the question with this, as it is really with all things, is whether the anger of voters stays intense enough to drive some kind of political solution. You know, oftentimes we get over these things really quickly. I was talking to a friend um, on the phone on Sunday and we were talking about this and he said, you know, I'm afraid this is going to fade really rapidly. And I said, why do you think that? And he said, well, cause I just got a call from my daughter and she's sitting outside with some friends having a beer at a outside bar. You know, the storm is like three days away and completely forgotten for those guys. Um, the question is, you know, when you get to the point after, you know, we're going to get a bunch of, you know, wagging fingers and uh, tongue lashings out of the legislature on Thursday. And then we're going to go forward probably into some kind of detailed postmortem, which I would suspect is going to look a lot like the postmortem after 2011. And then we're going to decide whether to do something about it. And if the public's not excited and um, incensed about it, then the people whose job it is to kind of calm these things down and keep the status quo, which would be the lobbyists for the utilities and the big industrials and all of the people who kind of like the system as is, even with the glitches, are going to, going to win. No, I just always call it voter amnesia. Like people are so busy and you think that the anger now is going to translate to the next election, but people forget. And I'm just wondering, um, it makes me think that, you know, given that we were adamant to stay not under federal oversight, if this is just our, our you know, goal to be uh, independent, kind of shot us in the foot a little bit or a lot. Yeah, you know, there is there is a lot of questioning, particularly among people who uh, are of the liberal persuasion outside of Texas about the idea of Texas exceptionalism uh, last week, you know, this idea that uh, we want to keep the federal government outside of our business and, and, and we kind of stand our own and that the low regulation, you know, model of Texas is, is, is a good one moving forward. Uh, a lot of people who disagree with that uh, pointing to what happened last week, uh, saying that that should be a question. You know, Ross, you, you talked a little bit about the idea of, um, you know, ERCOT and it getting a lot of attention, you know, I think of like what they say about uh, sports referees, right? That if no one's talking about you after the game, then you know, you did a good job and definitely not ideal for ERCOT to be sort of a household name 
right now after after the past week and a half. Aaron, can you explain just briefly what this group is and, and how they operate? Yeah, so the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, they manage and operate the electricity grid and that covers most of Texas, not all of Texas. And so they essentially, they do a lot of things. They make sure that the grid has enough supply and demand. That's their primary function is like forecasting supply and demand for peak seasons and ensuring that the state sort of is allowing all the transactions to occur that need to occur in order to uh, balance our electricity market. Um, So Texas is a deregulated market, which has gotten a lot of attention, but deregulated doesn't exactly mean what you'd think it means in this context. It means more so that it's it's a more pure market than a vertically integrated structure. So instead of having like one company that you buy your power from, right? Texans have so many companies to choose from. You know, I choose from like 50 to 100 companies to get my power in Houston, right? So you have all of these retail providers that are selling customers power. And then on the generation side, you have all of these uh, generating companies that sell power into the marketplace. And ERCOT helps facilitate a lot of those transactions and then also tries to make sure that we have enough supply and demand to uh, balance the grid. So that is its primary function is the reliability. And so that's why it's catching a lot of heat right now. But it is a nonprofit. It's overseen by the Public Utility Commission. But I think it's really important to note that ERCA is not a governmental entity. And that has been pretty confusing for people. Um, So, I mean, as you may have heard, uh, several uh, board members, all of the board directors resigned yesterday or said they were going to resign at the end of the board meeting uh, today on Wednesday. And then a couple board members uh, also put in their notice. So it's interesting to see ERCOT taking uh, the fall for this, which I think they should take the fall, you know, to some extent, right? It's their primary job to provide reliability of the grid. But there is like some regulatory oversight and some laws that we do not have in place in Texas that contributed to this problem. Ross, do you think ERCOT makes kind of an easier target than some of the other people who are to blame here? I mean, of course, they have reliability in their name. So that uh, that that doesn't help in this situation because like wearing a kick me sign, right? (laughs) Exactly. But, you know, I think about the retail providers, which are sometimes cities, but also oftentimes, you know, big, you know, publicly traded companies, companies that uh, create a lot of jobs and maybe donate a lot of money and hire a lot of lobbyists. Uh, And then obviously the energy extractors, the, the natural gas extractors, uh, the pipelines and things like that are, are pretty strong, you know, pillars of the Texas economy. Does it surprise you? Do you think it's, there's any kind of misplaced anger or, or more anger that should be spread around here? Well, I think the primary sources of anger when you sort of get down to why people are upset about this aren't really ERCOT problems. I mean, ERCOT made, you know, clearly some mistakes and, you know, deserves to be in the line of accountability, but ERCOT doesn't decide how much generating power is available. You know, that's the generators. And they do that based on their own ability to produce power, which is partly based on their ability to get fuel in the case of natural gas or in the case of frozen wind turbines or whatever. And they produce a certain amount of power. So ERCOT, you know, misestimated or was wrong on its estimate of how much generation those guys would provide. 
but those guys are responsible for not providing that generation. And then on the other side of ERCOT, ERCOT doesn't decide your house is going to go dark. They decide how much power to allocate to various parts of the state. And then those retailers, the people that you directly deal with for your electricity are the ones who decide your house is going to be dark and my house isn't. So the anger about how come my place got shut off and why was it shut off for 90 hours? One of my friends said, you know, um, our old colleague Jay Root was off for 88 or 90 hours and, you know, pretty, pretty steamed about it. That wasn't a decision ERCOT made. That's a decision made by local utilities. So a lot of the places where people really want to, you know, poke somebody in the chest and say, what the hell happened here? A lot of that anger is directed probably better at generators and at the utility companies on the ground. And ultimately, you know, most of those entities are following the procedures and the laws and the regulations that were written by the legislature. This is, you know, the guy who's considered, you know, one of the um, sort of thought leaders on Texas DREG. Help me, Aaron. I can't remember his name. The Harvard professor. We'll think of it, you know, right after the podcast ends, I'm sure. But, you know, he said, you know, look, this is working like it's supposed to, um, which is infuriating if you sat in the dark for all of last week. But, you know, I, I think ERCOT's part of the blame here. But I think that blame is going to be ultimately shared with generators, utilities, the legislature, and the executive branch, the Public Utility Commission, and the governor who appointed them. So let's talk a little bit about what's going to happen now. We're, we're obviously in the middle of a legislative session. This has kind of elevated itself to, I would say, one of the top highest profile issues of what had to this point been a pretty low-key legislative session. We've got a bunch of meetings this week. The Railroad Commission met yesterday. We've got the ERCOT board meeting today, which Aaron will be going to cover as soon as we're done with this. We've got legislative hearings on Thursday. We've got Public Utilities Commission meeting on Friday. Last week, we had a speech from Governor, or a press conference from Governor Greg Abbott, where he talked about winterization. He's giving a, a statewide address later today. What are we seeing? Where are we seeing the momentum, Aaron, and towards reform? What are what are we what do we think the state is going to do about this? Yeah, I think a lot of the conversation right now is about winterizing the power generators, and that's fair because this was mostly a supply side issue, as I mentioned earlier. And one of the main problems is that these power generators, whether you're a natural gas plant, a wind turbine even a nuclear plant tripped offline during this crisis. And all of these power generators don't expect to have this sort of extreme cold in Texas. And so they didn't invest in the infrastructure to prepare for it. And so, you know, it is possible to have natural gas plants, coal plants, wind turbines functioning in excessively cold conditions because we do it all over the world, right? The problem here is that partially because we're in this sort of market system and we're competing to get the generating the lowest price possible for power we're incentivizing companies to spend as little as possible to generate their electricity as cheaply as possible because they all get the same price for power in the market so you know if i can generate electricity for ten dollars per megawatt hour and you can't generate electricity for less than 
I don't know, 40 megawatts per hour, then that means that I'm going to make more money because we're all getting the same price in the wholesale market. So what that essentially means is that plants in Texas are built kind of cheaply and we don't have these preparations because even if we get a storm every 10 years or so, like we had a storm in 2011, we had storms prior to that in 1989, I believe, then these companies don't feel it's worth their investment dollars to build plants with these sort of winterizing uh, equipment. One of the main problems I'm now hearing about from experts is that going back and retrofitting these plants with the equipment necessary to prepare is going to be much more difficult and expensive than it would have been if they had just made that investment from the beginning. Sure, sure. You know, the governor said something the other day. I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about this. The governor made it sort of an oblique reference the other day to the state paying for winterization. Um, I know a lot of um, you could almost hear Republican eyebrows hitting their hairlines. Um, you know, the um, the conversation after the 2011 storm sort of devolved into how expensive it was to winterize and whether it was worth it. Kind of what Aaron is talking about. I'm, I'm curious if you think the state is proposing to jump in here and have all of us pay for that winterization. We even have the means like in the budget, we're just passing it, the cost off to the customers. Those are all good questions. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Aaron, you've written about how this is going to be, we don't necessarily have a price tag, but this is going to be a very expensive proposition if that's what we end up doing. Right. Totally. I think it's an interesting topic, especially because so many companies lost money in this crisis, because if you were sort of had more retail side of your business where you're providing power to people than your generation side where you're producing power. Like if you could produce power during the winter storm, you probably made money during the event, right? Uh, not a lot of companies were able to, but possibly you did if you had like a lot of generation as opposed to the uh, power that you were providing to people on sort of the uh, consumer side. But if, if your company was structured such that you were uh, trying to provide power to people and you were having to go to the wholesale market and buy power for $9,000 per megawatt hour, then you probably lost a lot of money during this event as a company. And so I think actually companies might have a lot of political momentum going into this conversation with the legislature because they also don't want this to happen again because they just lost a lot of money. Sure. Well, and this goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Ross, about how long of a tail does this storm have politically? And because we're obviously in a legislative session in the midst of a tough economic time where there's not a ton of money for the state to spend, right? It's, it's maybe looking better than it did uh, a year ago or, or nine months ago, but still, it's not like there's just money sitting around for the legislature to, to throw at, at oil and you know, natural gas companies and things like that to weatherize. And, and so, and also, you know, we, we remain in a state that is uh, reluctant to impose regulations on, on, uh, on private companies, particularly companies involved in the fossil fuels industry. And so will this anger sustain, will Greg Abbott, will the, the leaders of the Senate and the House feel the pressure and the need to devote a lot of money and resources to this when, when there could be opposition and, and, and that's, it's not going to be an easy thing to do. Yeah. It, it depends on the dollar amount. You know, at some point in here, 
somebody will produce something like a shopping list and said, okay, if you were going to weatherize or winterize these plants, you would do items one through 10 and items one through 10 or whatever they are, will have dollar signs next to them. And if the legislature is going to impose this and or pay for some of this, any of that kind of stuff, you know, that's, that's what they're going to work from is some kind of a shopping list and say, you know, it would cost this much to install heaters. It would cost this much to wrap the pipes. It would cost, you know, down the list like that. And, you know, if the, if the state doesn't have the money, you know, the common mechanism for something like this is adding a few cents to people's bills. A few cents is, you know, you can hide a lot of stuff in, a, in the phrase a few cents, you know, and that's, you know, that's a potential big argument. You also have a structure of prices that, you know, I looked at uh, some numbers the other day. Texas is kind of in the middle of the pack on electric prices residentially, but it's much cheaper in Texas for, you know, compared to other states for commercial clients and for industrial clients. And to preserve that kind of structure, which is built around economic development and all of that, you know, there's some, there's a lot of politics buried in there. So I think this very quickly becomes a financial fight in the legislature. Uh, no, as far as the election goes and keeping the anger alive beyond the session, I think you've seen in the past week, Democrats who maybe have hopes in 2022 or 24, like Beto O'Rourke, uh, former El Paso congressman and presidential hopeful, step up tweeting a lot, you know, showing, raising money, handing out water, things like that. And I think those people are trying to, you know, position themselves, I think, ahead of the election on this issue and will try to keep it alive. But um, there's a lot of stark images, too, uh, from the past week that will probably infuriate people and tug at their hearts as we get closer to the next ballot box, if you will. Definitely. I know just from my communications with non-political people, old friends and things like that, there was a lot of anger at the state's leaders over, over the past week and a half. I want to talk a little bit more about the politics of this, but first, let's take a break to hear from our sponsors. The University of Texas at Austin. As Texas's leading research university, UT prepares students to do research that impacts Texas's economy, cultural life, and natural treasures. Find out more at utexas.edu. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas Incorporated. Texas deserves a healthier future. Register for a virtual conversation, a new prescription for better health outcomes, to discover the new tools and data accelerating Texas toward better health outcomes. Tuesday, March 2nd at 8 a.m. Register at mhm.org. Okay, well, while many Texans were stuck in their homes in freezing temperature, we saw pictures of, you know, frozen pipes and frozen sinks and, and all kinds of diff various nightmares across the state. Several of our politicians were not in Texas. And that sparked some anger among people, uh, speaking of, of frustrated Texans. Alana, can you tell us a little bit about uh, where Ted Cruz and Ken Paxton were? Sure. Uh, pictures began to surface Wednesday evening, I believe it was, of uh, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz, the junior Republican senator here in Texas, uh, with his family on a plane en route to Cancun, Mexico. Uh, Come Thursday morning, we were able to confirm that those images were in fact the case and, and true. And by Thursday evening, afternoon, he was flying back from Cancun. Evidently, he, his wife, Heidi, and his daughters were in the cold, like many of us in Houston. And uh, he said that his daughters said, well, hey, well, I'm off 
school for the week. Let's go somewhere warmer. And they did. And he said he planned to, you know, engage in Zoom meetings and be in touch with officials. He just didn't know exactly what he could do here, I, I think was along the lines of what he said. Uh, of course, a lot of backlash. He did talk to Houston media afterwards where he said, look, I, I was sitting on the plane and realized that this might not be a good idea. Um, and he changed his plans. And then, of course, Cruz is such a high profile figure that it began a lot of media, including us and others, asking, how, where's, where's so-and-so or where's this person? And one of those was Attorney General Ken Paxton, who we began hearing was, uh, had traveled to Utah last week. And uh, by Monday, we were able to confirm that along with other outlets that he uh, and his wife, uh, State Senator Angela Paxton, had flown to Utah the previous uh, Wednesday or last Wednesday, I should say, uh, in the midst of the storm to uh, engage in some meetings uh, regarding a Google antitrust lawsuit uh, that Texas is leading 10 states on and, and some other events that he wanted to attend, demonstrations, things like that. As far as uh, Angela Paxton's uh, statement said that she uh, included meetings that benefit her efforts to promote human dignity and support law enforcement. Uh, that was the extent really of the statement from her rep. Um, again, anger incited. We did hear from the Attorney General yesterday, uh, Tuesday via Twitter, where he explained what we had confirmed and then went on to blame the media for, you know, wanting to get clicks and revenue by writing about such a story. But, you know, I just thought about it. I'm like, well, we didn't, we didn't generate that or, or do it for that reason in the first place. And just given the, the reaction uh, from people here in Texas who were sitting in the cold and things like that, it it was obviously warranted to write about and, and say, hey, where are you? And I was looking over the weekend at Angela Paxton's Facebook page. She had a copious amount of posts about where people can get help, who was giving out water, but there wasn't a single picture of her in the community. And I just wonder, you know, I mean, you see this, you saw Cruz after he returned from Cancun in the community handing out water. I mean, this is, you would think a, a prime photo op uh, for, you know, the next campaign or whatever it is, helping Texans in the, you know, moment of crisis. And the fact that she didn't have any photos to any of her pictures showing her in the community kind of raised flags. And sure enough, we were able to confirm that she had accompanied her husband. What's the old saying about work? 90% of success is showing up. Yeah, let's let's separate these two a little bit. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're similar, but different circumstances, I think. Uh, I want to talk about Cruz first, which I think is basically just unequivocally and monumentally a just boneheaded, stupid political move. I mean, I, I, I don't know. You know, we can we can have the discussion and I'm interested in hearing y'all's thoughts on this about, you know, whether whether there whether it mattered that Cruz was here. But uh you know, in terms of one of my least favorite words that people always bring up in politics, the optics. I mean, you could not really have any worse optics than getting on a plane and flying to Cancun, you know, the going to the beach while while your constituents are in their homes freezing. Well, and then blaming your children, uh, yeah. <laughs> essentially saying that, you know, your teenage daughter said, hey, look, we're off school. Let's let's uh, fly to a warmer climate. Which by, you know, with his, with their mom, you know, not, not maybe the, a statewide elected leader who, who could help facilitate, you know, communication between the state and the feds and, and other help that he could have offered. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting, I guess. You know, whether he's, whether he is needed or not really isn't the thing. He was loud about 
Steve Adler, the Austin mayor, going to Cabo on a wedding trip after and and telling Austinites from uh, Mexico uh, via, I guess, Facebook, you know, hey, don't travel and be socially distanced. You know, he pointed that out as hypocrisy. He jumped on Gavin Newsom, the California governor, for going to the French Laundry, a fancy restaurant, after telling people to stay home and not go to restaurants. And then here he is doing kind of the same thing. He's already demonstrated that he knows or believes that this is wrong. And there he goes off to Mexico. Well, right. and then again, one of his primary foes, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, took the opportunity and fundraised and was in Houston with $3 million to hand out water and other aid, really kind of trying to, went and did, show him up. Great. Right. And then the Paxson trip was a work trip, right? Although I think there are a lot of questions that could be asked about why do you need to go to Utah to talk about a Google case when even most courtrooms are meeting remotely right now? I mean, you know, I, I'm, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about why that had to be an in-person meeting. Well, hey, I don't you know could, about you can even do podcasts on Zoom. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't know about that. That part had to be in person, but he did also in a suburb of Salt Lake City attend a demonstration about de-escalation training, something I guess they're considering implementing here uh, for law enforcement. Uh, but again, why couldn't that be virtual or, or rescheduled? I saw was scrolling through the the uh, comments on Twitter of uh, the post of our story or, or his. Uh, reaction to our story. And a lot of people, you know, support him saying it's a non-issue, you know, we support you, Attorney General. But then somebody said previously planned, which is what um, both the Attorney General and his spokesperson said that this trip was already on the books. And somebody said, well, uh, me being without water or power for, for days wasn't previously planned. And, and look what happened. So, um, well, you know, and I want to talk a little bit about what he tweeted yesterday, where he kind of gave his explanation. And then I believe his last tweet was, while the media does its job to drum up controversies by writing stories to generate clicks and revenue, I will continue to do my job. And it just struck me that he continues to be targeted by people and the victim of people digging up things. You know, we had five years ago, we had overzealous prosecutors digging up felony charges for him for securities fraud. In the fall, we had uh, his own staffers, what he called rogue employees, digging up allegations of bribery against him and then quitting. And now the media is digging up this latest controversy. Uh, if, if he is indeed the victim of these things, there are a lot of people from a lot of different areas conspiring against Ken Paxton. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I, I love speech. Everybody's but, um, speechless now. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, just I just seemed, wanted to go on that rant. I just wanted to go on that rant. It just Ross, seemed uh, like out of the current playbook almost, you know, to, to blame the media. If you, you know, you explain yourself in three or four tweets on what you were doing and why not leave it at that? Why then point the finger for us writing? And again, I mean, we had tons of comments on the story, tons of shares. People obviously were uh, infuriated with the news that another state leader uh, was not in the state when so many people were suffering. So, I, I mean, given that reaction, obviously it was newsworthy to say, you know, you two were out of state. The other person I just want to talk about politically here is Abbott, Ross. I wonder if you could kind of assess for me how you think the past week and a half to two weeks have gone to him, gone for him. I mean, do you think he 
is in a similar, obviously he was, he stayed here. He was in Texas. He's not facing the same kind of criticism, but do you think he's in a similar spot where he's got to be kind of be worried about how this is going for him? I think between this storm and the last year of the pandemic um, and a couple of other things during his administration, he's building the case if an opponent wants to pick it up for not doing the job, um, for not performing you know, the job of governor in the way that, that it might be performed. You know, the, the pandemic response has been somewhat fumbling. He's not the only governor who's had trouble with it, but he's certainly had trouble with it. He virtually disappeared for the first three or four days of the freeze and then came in ranting at ERCOT more than he was really fixing anything. And, you know, I, I think that um, you can build a case that, you know, this is an administration that isn't good at, at the big stuff. You know, the we've got an infrastructure failure here. We had, uh, uh, you know, somewhat flaccid response to a pandemic, you know, it was, um, you know, indecisive and kind of, you know, do this, never do this. No, wait, always do this. Um, it's a lot of flopping around here. And then, you know, again, this is a, this is something that he's certainly not the only governor with this problem, but, you know, the vaccine rollout wasn't so great either. Um, we've got, you know, before any of this started, we had a bunch of big contracting problems in the government. You know, they were having hard times with the Medicaid contract that the state has. It's one of the biggest contracts. At the beginning of this, there was a bunch of fumbling with the contact tracing contracts. Um, this is a recurring theme in this administration, and this storm didn't do him any good. Right. And I think he will, it, it was definitely a, a rough start for him. Um, and I think a lot of how he will be judged, of course, will also depend on where he goes from here with the rest of this legislative session and everything like that. Right. And, and there's a lot to continue to watch. Uh, we've got to run because Aaron has to start covering some of the fallout of this. The uh, ERCOT meeting starts in about 18 minutes. So that will be the end of it for today. I want to say thanks to Ross, Alana, and Aaron for joining us today. Thank you to Todd and Justin, our producers. And thank you to our sponsors, Texas A&M University, the Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority, the University of Texas at Austin, and Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas. We'll see y'all next week. You